This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to The Stand with Amy Dunphy. Now, Britain has this morning announced that the election in the North for a new assembly, which was due to be held on the 15th of December, would not be held. The Northern Secretary, Chris Heaton-Harris, said something vague, but it was clear he didn't really understand enough about the North at the moment or the legislation that's proposed to do anything. So he's kicked the can down the road. Heaton-Harris is influential member of the European Research Group, which is basically a gang of anti-EU right-wing hacks, as our friend Christian called them. And he's probably still reading his way into his brief. It wasn't a good idea anyway to have this election. That is not, though, the most important news in Britain. This morning, the most important news is that the economic crisis they face will be severe and will affect everybody very, very badly indeed. The Bank of England governor increased the interest rates by 75 basis points yesterday. And we're joined now by Chris Johns, former chief economist of the Bank of Ireland and now a respected commentator. Chris, the big news really is not about the North. The big news is about the depth and scale of Britain's economic crisis. Yes, the news from Northern Ireland, of course, raises all sorts of interesting legal questions, as well as political yes. and other ones. Um, because as my understanding of the law is that he has to call an election, and now there'll be a very small window in the new year for it to take place. What he's up to is a matter of speculation. You said kicking the can down the road. I think that's absolutely right. He may well be hopeful that the negotiations, such as they are with the European Union, will bear some fruit in that time. Yes. Um, but I wouldn't hold my breath. I listened to an interview with the outgoing ambassador of the EU to the UK. We have one now. Since Brexit, they have had to establish a diplomatic presence in the third country that is the EU. And, and this interview was asking him about the Northern Ireland Protocol. And I was listening, trying to hear some understanding, at least from the EU, about what the problem is. And he, this outgoing ambassador expressed some exasperation with the whole process, but, um, in, in a sense, exasperation with the people of Northern Ireland, which led me to be extremely worried, because what he said was, was absolutely right, 
which is that being in the single market that is the UK and the single market that is the EU places Northern Ireland in an enviable economic yes. position. They have the best of both worlds that no other place in the world actually has. That's all absolutely true. And he thought that it was a very important point to make. And in a sense, it is. But in a real sense, it isn't. Because as the interviewer said to him, but that doesn't matter to the whole debate. Um, this, is a <laughs> this is a question of identity, of uh, sectarian politics, of all those other things that have got nothing to do with economics. If Brexit taught you anything, sir, you know that economic arguments don't count when you are dealing yeah. with issues of identity. So I'm not sure if anybody fully understands the situation in Northern Ireland. And I'm not hopeful. Well, I'm hopeful, but I'm not confident that there is going to be a successful outcome to the current negotiations. I suspect that Sunak, in particular, wants a successful outcome and hopes that before the elections are called, he can say to the unionists, look, this is what I have done. But currently, the position is that the, the gap between what is achievable, which is some form of compromise, and the full implementation of the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, which is what the DUP say they want, looks to me to be unbridgeable. But we yeah. shall see. We shall. But uh, before we do, Chris, the measures announced yesterday, the Bank of England has moved, and in subsequent interviews, all parties agreed that there will be a recession in Britain, it will be prolonged, and that interest rates will rise, and that people with mortgages and other commitments that depend on interest rates, their debt will be measured by a new metric now, and it's likely to be severe. How bad is this, Chris, is one question. But perhaps before answering that, has the scale of Britain's economic crisis, which is always attributed by Tory politicians to international circumstances, supply chain issues, and so on, how badly was Britain affected by quasi quatangs and Liz Truss's what was called a mini-budget, which was a massive, radical mistake by all accounts? Well, there's a couple of answers to that question. The first one being the reaction of the financial markets to that so-called mini-budget. That clearly has put the frighteners, at least on the Bank of England. And Andrew Bailey, the governor of the Bank of England, said yesterday that this economic crisis facing the UK is now much worse than the serial economic crises that we faced during the 1970s. And the older, those of us old enough to remember those crises know yes. how bad it was. It was very bad. So if it's worse than that, we have a real problem. Now, that's a forecast, and we must always treat forecasts with a degree of, of a pinch of salt. But the Bank of England actually does have quite a good track record when it comes to economic forecasting. Not perfect, but it got the post-Brexit period basically right, actually. The forecast that it made at the time six, seven years ago, have basically come to pass. Britain is in a, an economic hole. The reasons for that hole go back many years, not just to the mini-budget. We basically haven't had much, if any, economic growth, particularly for things like real incomes, since the financial crisis. And that has led to all sorts of problems, not least for the people concerned. What it means is that you have a polity, a government, and a body politic, if you like, fighting over a cake, the distribution of the cake that is not growing and might even be shrinking now 
that it's not a forecast recession. The Bank of England says quite explicitly, we're in one. And yes. they're also saying it's going to be one of the longest that we've ever seen. It's going to last, according to their forecast, right up until the next general election when it has to take place. So anybody that thought the Sunak... Which is two, two years from now, it's yep. 2024. So from an economic perspective, at least, Sunak would be nuts to call an early election. He has to hope that the Bank of England's forecasts are wrong and that we'll actually, by the time the election has to be called, we'll be coming out of re recession and that people will be feeling a bit better. So it, it, it is a whole, but it is a whole of their own making. And their opponents are very keen to point out that they've now been in power for 12 years. That's absolutely right. But of course, the problems with the British economy do stem from that 12-year period, but also go back a lot longer. Anybody's economic situation, yours in Ireland, the United States, wherever, where you are at the moment is, is a confluence of many factors going back many years. And Britain has a big economic problem with things like productivity growth, overall economic growth, um, and inequality. And one of yeah. the things that's emerging over the, the, from the data that's coming out now over the last few years, going, going back at least a decade, is that Britain's inequality is now becoming US-like um, yes. and not European. It wasn't too bad. Um, it, it had an, it, 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 there are various ways of measuring this, and there are various things that you can say about it. But a lot of the problems, political problems that Britain faces, are that the economic growth that we do manage, the meagre economic growth that we do manage to achieve, seems to be going to the haves rather than the have-nots. It's very, very, we don't have much economic growth, and the bit that we do doesn't isn't going to the right people, the people at the bottom from the middle down of the income distribution. So it's it, it, it's deep seated, and they have to do lots of difficult things. The problem that they face is that in order to do things about economic growth, you don't do what Quasi Quartain and Liz Trust tried to do. You need to do um, very difficult, politically difficult things. Like say, for example, you, you you like economic growth. You might ask the average voter in the UK, and everybody will say yes. And then you say, well, the first two things that we have to do to boost economic growth in the short and longer term is increase immigration, because that will boost economic growth, because firms are crying out for workers. Because we have yes. this really strange paradox of an economy in recession that is short of workers. It's bizarre. It, that's a very unusual feature of this recession. And everybody will say, no, we don't want more immigration. So you point out to them, well, that conflicts with your desire for economic growth, and they will say, don't care. We prefer no immigration to more immigration. Then you say, okay, well, if you don't want that, one of the things that we could do to, bo to, to boost short-term growth from both a housing crisis and an environmental crisis point of view is relax, change, reform planning laws in that we have to build more houses, we have to build more factories, we have to build more wind farms, we have to be build more solar farms. And that hits a number of targets, both from economic growth and environmental considerations. So let's have a go at planning. And everybody jumps up and down and says, no, you can't do that. So there are a long list, I've just mentioned two there, of things that you could do to boost economic growth. But the things that you need to be able to do to boost economic growth, people say they don't want. So you have this stasis, this, this series of paradoxes, this series of contradictions with it, that mean that we are, that contributes to the mess that we're in. Yes, and I saw Sunak during the week at Leaders' Questions. I saw his appointment of Suella Braverman back into the Home Office six days after she was sacked for a very serious breach 
of security, I also saw a kind of a real weakness in him. I mean, his front bench is is terrible. I mean, there's this woman, Braverman, called what was happening on the South Coast an invasion, which was both insulting and to gravely misunderstand the nature of that problem. These are desperate people, and they don't constitute really an invasion, particularly in the light of what you just said about immigration and its necessity. The big giveaway was he changed his mind on going to COP27. He had said last week he wasn't going. He was criticized for not going. Up pops our old friend Boris Johnson to say he's going because he's been invited by the Egyptians. And yesterday, Sunak announces that he's going. He's a wholly unconvincing leader. Yeah, I think that's about the fourth or fifth U-turn in a, a few weeks that he's been prime minister, and it, it just displays weakness. I think the media fell into the very clever trap that Suella Braverman laid for them. When she made that comment that we are being invaded on the south coast of England for the yes. first time since 1066, that was a classic bait and switch. And everybody, including the Labour Party, went nuts about that comment, which was disgraceful. It was awful, and um, lots of people labelled it as a neo-fascistic type comment, and it got yes. everybody everybody terribly excited. But it meant that everybody's focus was on that comment. That comment itself, um, you could argue that it was inflammatory, but you can't argue that she'd done something wrong in a legal or regulatory sense by making it. We have free speech and all the rest of it. And so everybody jumped up and down about that and then didn't talk about the substantive issue, the legally substantive issue of the the documents that she sent over her private yes. phone, which th uh, allegedly were breaches of national security, that got pushed into the background. That was the issue over which she could have been sacked or forced to resign. But now we haven't been talking about that. We've been talking about her inflammatory remarks, which I suspect it certainly looks to me like a very cleverly laid trap, which Labour and the media neatly fell into. Is the Tory party now in its ridiculous looking state. I mean, they are the laughing stock of, of, of Europe. I mean, just to take the foreign secretary, his advice this week to traveling English fans to the World Cup who may be gay, he said to try not to offend the host nation, the Qataris, whose vile treatment, not just of gay people, but of the people, 5,600 people died building their statement. And this clown, James Cleverly, who seems to have wormed his way onto the front bench in a very senior position, makes this idle remark. You have Chris Heaton Harris. You have some awful, awful traps on the front bench. I, I, I don't like to use too extravagant language about people. But these people, Matt Hancock has gone off to the jungle because he didn't get a job from Sunak. Matt Hancock was in charge of the COVID. He was the Minister for Health at the time of the pandemic. And there are all kinds of questions about who got contracts and all of that. He's off now to what kind of a 
of a political party are the Tories now? Well, he, Sunak is not fishing in a very deep talent pool for his front bench. We, you and I have talked about that many times. So I would guess he would argue that he's making the best of a bad job and that he has to be nakedly political and p- protect his right flank because the danger for him between now and the next election is that the right wing come at him in the way that they've come at every single Tory leader since and including John Major going all the way back to the 1990s. He doesn't want history to repeat itself. So he's continuously having to do something to appease the right. That makes him look weak. It uh, prompts U-turns like the decision to go to COP27, which I think was entirely uh, prompted by Boris Johnson going because Boris Johnson clearly is a standard bearer for the right. And this is going to be a pattern that will continue for as long as Sunak is prime minister, is that the the right, they're a bit like that situation I was talking about in Northern Ireland, when you can go on about the economics of the situation being beneficial, but you you have to say as a real politic, piece of real politic, it doesn't, the economics don't matter. And the incredible thing about this right wing of the Tory party when it comes to Brexit, or indeed any other issue, is that the economic consequences of what they are asking for don't matter to them. Their ideology yes. is such that um, they have to be pure about the issues that, uh, around which they are um, forcing the prime minister to make these kind of U-turns, whether it's um, over uh, Northern Ireland, for example. You know, They don't care what happens to the island of Ireland no. um, as a result of their hard line, uh, no border down the Irish Sea type nonsense that they come up with. They really do not care. And more generally, they do not care about the consequences for the economy. So there will just be a whole series of issues like this facing Sunak during his tenure. And it tells you that the the government is not fit for purpose. It can't govern. It can't run the economy in any reasonable, practical way. And the ways in which they're doing it at the moment, I know we're going to come on to this, are completely nuts. But this is the situation that we're in. It's a very, very serious situation. Right. Just... Let me run something finally past you before we leave the loony right in the Tory party. So Ella Braverman went to Dover yesterday in a Chinook helicopter. A Chinook helicopter costs 3500 per hour to fly. She was going 20 or 30 miles. She could have gone by car, but she went in this war helicopter. What's that all about? She could have got a cheap day return on the train, which would have cost £11.50. So, I mean, this seems to be putting it up to who? It's not a very... Her own government? It's not a very subliminal message, is it? No. It's trying to keep that invasion metaphor going with a military response. You know, if you are being invaded, then you need a, a strident response. And so it's just more of this, what, what I've said before, during all of the conversations you and I had about the Johnson government, uh, we talked about performative government, the importance of headlines, the importance of photographs, yes. Liz Truss in the tank, Liz Truss walking around in a fur hat in Red Square, the Instagram photos. This is the, the point of government in their eyes. It's performative. rather than pragmatic, rather than details, rather than getting on with trying to make the country a better place. It's all about the photo op. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact 
you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Let me ask you, Chris, then, about Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak's task in preparing an autumn statement. Clearly, Jeremy Hunt as the Chancellor of the Exchequer, and as far as we know, a serious politician, and certainly not part of this sort of rough crowd <laughs> that represent the right of the Tory party. Sunak, as a former Chancellor, as the most recent Chancellor, only a matter of weeks ago, how is he going to collaborate with Hunt? Whose budget will it be, Chris? And what is the potential for tension between these two men who are very different, I think? Well, the first thing I'd say is that I don't think Hunt is an economist. He doesn't have any real training or experience or background in this. So he will be being guided by the mandarins of the Treasury, um, who uh, always default to cutting rather than increasing public spending, always default to try and balance the books, that famous expression. Yes. The problem that Sunak has got is that his conservative right-wing instincts, because he was a tax-hiking chancellor, he was a balance-the-books chancellor. So on the face of it, it looks as if they are aligned. The problem he's got, he's got is that he's now prime minister. So he's got to think about what this means from a political sense. And he's got to think about what this impact of what Hunt is about to do will have on the economy. And will he, will he be tempted to meddle? Is he allowed to meddle? And is there potential there for serious strife between the two of them? There's potential, depending on what happens next. But at the moment, they seem aligned. The problem is going to be the consequences of the budget, because somebody somewhere, I hope, 
is going to be telling Sunak, one of his spads, his equivalent of Dominic Cummings, is going to be jumping up and down and saying to Cummings, uh, saying to Sunak, this is nuts, because it is. Because what you have is the British economy, as described by the Bank of England yesterday, in recession and going to be in one of the longest and deepest recessions that we've ever had, probably for the next couple of years, according to the Bank of England. And what you are about to do, both of the main arms of economic policy, your fiscal treasury side, which is the one that does all the taxes and spending thing, and the monetary side, which is the Bank of England, they're not going to do anything about this recession. In fact, they're going to make it worse. They're going to make it worse by raising taxes, cutting government spending, and raising interest rates. Yesterday's rise in interest rates was not the last, at least we don't think so. So this recession is going to be made worse by this insane stance of fiscal and monetary policy working together to slam the brakes on an economy that's already in recession. It makes no economic sense whatsoever. Why are you doing it? Well, Hunt and the Treasury will say, well, look what happened when Kwasi Kwarteng and Liz Truss tried to tap on the accelerator um, during the mini budget. They're able to put the frighteners on them. And it's it's a wrong framing. They're saying that the markets will take fright if we do anything other than this. We have to fill this fiscal black hole. And the fact is, Eamon, the fiscal black hole is something of an artificial construct and uh, doesn't really exist. They have this medium-term objective. I'm going to get a bit technical about this, but it's worth spending 30 seconds, no more, on what they're trying to do. And that is trying to get the level of government debt, the amount of money that the UK government has borrowed, down as a proportion of GDP over the medium term. That's what they have set themselves. It was set by the previous chancellor as a medium-term objective. There's no economics textbooks that says you have to do that. There's no economic theory that says that this is a must-have. It's a nice-to-have, but it isn't necessary. You could, for example, have a different rule that says we're going to stabilize the debt-to-GDP ratio, in which case that would produce a very different fiscal outlook. This is entirely self-imposed, and it's entirely made up, I suspect, by people who are going back to the original George Osborne, David Cameron agenda of trying to shrink the state. That's my political judgment, but the economic consequences of that are going to be devastating because tightening fiscal policy in the teeth of a very deep and prolonged recession is just crazy. And that's where the tension could arise because the the politician in Sunak, as opposed to the ex-chancellor in Sunak, will say, well, what does that mean for my electoral chances? If we're going to make the recession worse, and this is a pre-elect, this is now a pre-election period, the next two years, what does that mean? Do I give up on any prospect of getting the Tory party vote back for that general election? Or do I start to fight this? It's a big, big call for him. And I don't know which way he's going to go. I suspect he's so weak, as he's already demonstrated in so many U-turns already, that he will let Hunt do what he wants to do. Yeah, he's so he's so desperate that it leaders questions on Wednesday he raised the ghost of Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah, this you know we're we're going back you're going back into yeah. ancient history. You know, in order to try and justify what they're doing, they try to say, well, if you know, if you don't vote for us, you'll get Jeremy Corbyn back. It's it's just nuts. Jeremy no. Jeremy Hunt doesn't know any economics. I mean, this a, a simple thing just to illustrate how worried I am. Right, Councillors don't really need to. One thinks of Roy Jenkins in the past, a very respected and successful yeah. Labour chancellor. I don't think he was an economist or 
No, no, they don't have to be, but they have to oh. have some sense about them. And they have to have the ability from somewhere not to say incredibly stupid things. Now, one of the things that Hunter said, which, which has been repeated by um, several people, I think Margaret Thatcher said it, and it, it is just wrong, which is to say, he says that the government is just like any household and has to balance his budget. And the, the absolute truth with 100% certainty, Eamon, is that governments are not like households. They don't have to balance the books. They never do, ever balance their books. And if they do, it's by accident, and it happens very, very infrequently. Governments are very, very different financial entities than households. But Hunt only this week has said, we're just like a household, we have to balance the books. If you can say something as economically stupid as that, and apparently believe it, you know that this person is the wrong person in the wrong job. Right. Now, let me ask you about the effect on people with mortgages in the UK. There's another strike, incidentally, which you may or may not know about. Heathrow, the workers there are going on strike, have issued notice to their employers. There are rail strikes planned and all of that trade union trouble. But there is also a serious problem in the NHS because people are leaving the National Health Service because they're too stressed out, it isn't funded enough, they can't attract people. And it seems that every month this Conservative government is in office is hurting Britain more than anything. But let me ask you a question about that's more relevant to many of our listeners. If interest rates are going up for loans, why are they not going up for savings? Now, as a former banker, you should know this, Chris, and we're waiting for a convincing answer. Well, I, I do know, and I'll come on to that in a second, but I'll deal with the first part of your remarks Sorry. first, which is the, the Heathrow, the, the, the rail strikes, yes. the NHS. I happened the day before yesterday to, to be meeting somebody, picking somebody up, giving them a lift from Heathrow Airport, coming in from a European flight. And they sat on the tarmac after landing uh, from Europe uh, for longer than the flight took place. Wow. Um, and that was because they couldn't find an airbridge. They couldn't yep. find an airbridge that worked. Then they couldn't find some steps. Then they couldn't find some ground crew to escort the passengers, you know, the, the familiar sort of thing. Heathrow is a particular example of the way in which Britain doesn't work anymore. Yes. Uh, there are so many different examples I could give you about the, and this, this comes all the way from the failure of governments at the top. If you have a performative government that's interested only in managing headlines and creating Instagram photo opportunities, the hard graft, the detail, the mind-numbing, boring details of running the country, making sure the country works, it gradually erodes to the point where things stop working. Yes. And it's a bit like, I think it was... Um, Anyway, Hemingway famously said, I think it was Hemingway, that the way in which people go bankrupt and the way in which countries go bankrupt is very gradually and then all of a sudden. And yep. there's a great feeling um, here now that all of a sudden things just across the board don't work. It, people will say, I think as a sort of a, a dark joke, that Heathrow going on strike, we won't notice because it clearly doesn't work at the moment. Yes. There are so many dis different aspects, and it stems from this failure of governance at the top in that nothing is, is ever done to make things better, to make things work efficiently, to make things work at all. And the NHS is, is another huge example of this. Now, let's go to your second part of your question, which is interesting. Yeah, it's, because it's something that many people who are listening to this who may have savings in the bank or who may wonder about this gap 
between the interest rates banks are charging and the interest rates they're giving to savers. All right, I've got to tell you, banking is surrounded in mumbo-jumbo and jargon, and everybody thinks it's terribly mysterious and terribly clever and terribly sophisticated. It isn't. Banking is all about borrowing money from somebody and lending it to somebody else. And the the rate that you borrow um, has always got to be less than the rate that you um, pay somebody uh, yes. the rate that you charge somebody and that's the so banks like any widget manufacturing company have, have a profit margin and the profit margin is the difference between their borrowing rate and their lending rate banks love it when interest rates go up because it means they can always at least for a time um, if not permanently raise their profit margins and increase the gap between their borrowing and lending rates so that means that they'll pay you less as a depositor and charge you more if you're a borrower And that's what they're doing, not just in the UK, particularly in Ireland, but also in Europe. Banks at the moment are making out like bandits in this raising interest rate environment. And they always do. This is something that is common to every part of the cycle when interest rates go up. And they hate it when interest rates go down because the reverse happens. They find it more difficult to increase their profit margins. Who is the person who has the power to call the banks in and say, listen, guys, people are suffering out there. All kinds of people, people say, who saved a nest egg, it's getting burnt by inflation, it's, it's worth less. And yet, you know, you're charging people who want loans, you know, substantial amounts of money. Who is the person or is there a person who ought to be overseeing that? I mean, we have two ministers here in charge of finance, Pascal who the minister of finance, and he has another chap from Fianna Fáil, Michael McGrath, who's doing other work in that area. They've split the job in a, in a sense. The profit margin of a bank isn't, re- isn't regulated by anybody. The, the, the banking regulator is the central bank in Ireland and also here in, in the UK. And we have something called the Financial Conduct Authority. And they are more interested in financial stability, making sure things don't blow up. And that focus has grown since the financial crisis because the regulators didn't do a great job during the financial crisis. And now banks are heavily regulated from a stability point of view. And if you think about uh, financial stability, if you're a regulator, if your banks and financial institutions generally are making loads of money, you're quite happy because they're not going to go broke because that was the threat during the financial crisis. So the incentive structure for the regulator is wrong. They're actually incentivized to be happy when banks are making out like bandits. Now, it is possible, theoretically, that the various competition authorities in uh, countries like the UK and Ireland should be interested in the profit margins of banks when they are starting to behave like monopolies. But historically, they don't get involved in, in this. To, to be, very occasionally, they do. But arguably, politicians should pass a law or lean on somebody to say, actually, banks' profit margins need a look. And as a competition person, you need to be looking at this because the key indicator of how much competition there is in any industry is the profit margin that a company is able to achieve. And if it is nuts, if it is, if the profit margin is expanding like crazy, which for banks it is at the moment, then you have prima facie evidence that there isn't enough competition. Because the thing that drives... Um, pro- we're just losing one of our banks here. Ulster Bank is, is clearing up. The problem is more is most acute in Ireland because you have the highest amongst the highest mortgage rates in the European Union, and the, the reason is that you don't have any competition in Irish banking. 
you only have two banks now, effectively, AIB and Bank of Ireland, whereas prior to the financial crisis, you had loads. So when you only when you have a duopoly, it's not quite a monopoly, but when you have a duopoly, you can, you can do pretty much what you like. Now, I'm not suggesting for a second that there is collusion between the two main players in the Irish banks, but the economics textbooks will tell you that all of the incentive structures for duopoly are for nods, winks, formal or informal. Well, if you don't put your prices down, neither will we. And that means the profit margins for both of the participants in a duopoly are protected by their behavior, whether it's tacit or explicit. And what you've got in Ireland is a very uncompetitive banking market. And yeah. it's much more, it's, you know, it's not terribly competitive here in the UK, but at least we have a, more than two banks. So it, it, it is a real problem. Profit margins going up are a sign of lack of competition, and it is something that politicians should be interested in, and it's something that they should be telling the competition authorities, particularly in Ireland, to do something about. The fear, of course, is that um, there's too many people with vested interests to say, look, we remember what happened during the financial crisis. Yes. The banks nearly went bust. We've got to protect their profitability rather than attack it, which is what a competition authority is supposed to do. We did save them, though, didn't we? Us taxpayers. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm sure they'll think fondly of us. Chris, as always, it's a pleasure to talk to you and thank you very much indeed for joining us. That's Chris Johns, former chief economist at the Bank of Ireland and, of course, now a very respected commentator. Thanks for joining us from London, Chris. Thanks to all of you for listening. That's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.